Hi, this is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we are speaking with Farzad Muki, Investment Banking Director at Duff & Phelps Securities. But before we get started, if you are new to the Food Institute podcast and are listening to us on YouTube, we'd ask that you subscribe to our channel to stay current with our latest episodes and to like and share this video if you enjoyed it in particular. This helps us expand our reach, and we really appreciate it when you do so. With that said, I'll welcome Farzad to the show. How are you doing today, Farzad? And can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks. I'm uh, doing great under the circumstances that we're all in. Yeah, so I'm a director in the food and beverage M&A practice at Duff & Phelps. Uh, I've been with the firm for 15 years now um, and focus on executing sell-side capital raising and buy-side M&A transactions, uh, primarily for privately held and private equity-backed middle market food, beverage, and nutrition companies. And for those a little less initiated, could you give a little background on Duff & Phelps? Duff & Phelps has, uh, has actually grown substantially since I joined the firm in 2005. Uh, at that point, we were around 150 employees in three offices. We now have over 4,000 professionals in 72 offices across 25 countries. Uh, Duff & Phelps is uh, the global advisor that tax restores and maximizes value for clients in the areas of corporate finance, which is where I spend all my time. Uh, valuation, disputes and investigations, cybersecurity, claims administration, and regulatory issues. So it sounds like you're the guy to talk to then for the topic that we're speaking about this week. And that's kind of how the mergers and acquisitions market is going to change in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. So we all know that it's upending markets across the globe, but food's kind of in an interesting space because grocery retailers and food makers are benefiting early on. And we also have food service operators who are on the complete opposite side of the spectrum there. So I was just wondering, could you give an overview of the current mergers and acquisitions landscape for the food and beverage industries with those factors in mind? Sure. Um, so I'd say at a high level, the pandemic has caused just as much disruption to the M&A market as it has to the overall food industry. Um, starting around, you know, early April or so when the pandemic was declared, we immediately saw um, a widespread freeze in deal activity. Um, you know, this was caused by the same factors that, that you know, impacted the other markets, which were um, you know, changes in our daily lives and ultimately a lot of unknowns that created a ton of uncertainty. And because of that uncertainty, uh, buyers pressed pause on pursuing new deals um, really until they could better assess that uncertainty. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately there is a human element in making. Um, so, you know, that's what really drove that initial sort of um, uh, concern and halting on, on, the, on the, you know, on the front of buyers. Um, but sort of after that early March freeze, um, you know, I think over the following weeks, buyers began to better get a better sense for the environment that we were in, how consumers and businesses were reacting, um, and how consumers and individuals were, you know, coming to terms with the new reality that we're in. Um, so, you know, over that time, they, I think, just stepped back, assessed the situation, and, you know, it's really helped them begin to ultimately assess the risk in new deals. Um, and, and sort of where we are today is I think they have a better sense for that risk. And it's leading to, you know, what I would call a thawing of the freeze of m and markets in the food space. Um, so I think, you know, what, what that means is that deals which were in the market in early March and were put on hold at that point are now kicking off again. Um, and we're doing this with three of our own deals that we caused in March. Um, but, you know, I think you mentioned a few different sectors. So, you know, those sectors, I think, are seeing what I would say are varying 
levels of, of buying um, for businesses that fared better over the past few weeks and are positioned to fare well uh, in the coming weeks and months um, in categories like shelf-stable food products, you know, frozen food, meal components, private label manufacturers. Um, those deals in the near term, we think are going to see a lot more interest among buyers, um, not just because they performed well over the past few weeks, but they're really positioned to do so going forward. Um, I'd say this segment is you know, definitely ahead of the game with regards to buying in comparison to some of the other food categories. And the opposite end of the spectrum are restaurant businesses, which you know continue to be challenged and frankly have their own unique existential issues. Um, so there will be M and A activity in the restaurant space, but I think that's going to be you know very distressed in nature. Um, all that being said, I, you know I wouldn't expect a full return to normalcy on the deal front just yet. Um, that's probably for a few reasons. I think you know buyers will want to as much as possible, be patient and continue to monitor consumer spending habits and how those evolve over the coming months and, and how that ultimately translates to business performance. Uh, you know, that'll really help them narrow in on, on the risk elements and, 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 you know, try to remove whatever uncertainty they view in new deals. Um, and then I think the bigger factor in the near term is the fact that, you know, buyers themselves are just not comfortable traveling yet. Um, you know, meeting new companies and visiting facilities are a crucial part of buyer due diligence and, and really their fiduciary duty. It's something that they have to do before they can close deals. Um, so, you know, corporate development officers at strategic buyers and private equity execs are, you know, typically not for being road warriors, but, you know, they're still hunkered down at home. So I think um, that'll ultimately lead to a, a stretched out timeline for deals getting done. Um, any deals that I think will announced over the past few weeks were ones where, you know, those visits have already happened pre-COVID. And so I think those buyers felt comfortable getting those deals. How about on the sell side? And on the seller front, you know, we're seeing a lot of business owners that were considering a sale or, or you know, were in the middle of the process, uh, at least initially when the COVID impacts uh, or outbreak occurred. Um, you know, they've had to switch gears and focus most of their attention on really protecting the value of their asset. Um, and I think different businesses within the food space have, have done that in a few different ways. Um, you know, for restaurant operators, a lot of them are feeling a liquidity crunch because of the drop in, in traffic and temporary shuttering of stores. So they've had to figure out how to, you know, really get to cash, cash flow break even if possible. Um, you know, on the food and beverage manufacturing front, those operators have had to work around the clock to preserve their supply chains, to ensure that there are enough employees uh, and to enough healthy employees to work shifts. Uh, they've had to you know, develop and implement new safety policies and, and a host of other operational challenges. Um, you know, a lot of those companies have been able to at least initially overcome those challenges, but you know, those are going to continue to evolve as uh, as external pressures change. Can you explain some new risks that you're seeing in the market? Yeah, I think buyers, at least historically, have taken a, a long term perspective um, in acquisitions. Private equity buyers have a uh, call it three to seven year time horizon in their investments. So they, I think, ultimately are looking beyond some of the near-term um, COVID-related risks. Um, you know, because of that, I think more of their 
focus from a risk perspective is going to be on, um, you know, what they like to call cycle risk, which is sort of how a company is going to fare um, during a recession and how they're going to emerge out of it. Because ultimately, that'll affect, um, you know, how much value they can create over their whole period and, uh, you know, when they can think about exiting their business. Um, so, you know, I think the biggest impact to cycle risk is the fact that, uh, you know, unfortunately, we are going to be in a recession and it's unlikely that's that that's going to change for the next, you know, two to three years or, or improve from the situation that we're in now. What kind of an impact do you think the recession is going to have on the food industry? You know, that recession is going to cause uh, a change in how consumers spend their money on food and beverage. Um, and I think that's created a lot of uncertainty. You know, how do you model out the changes that are, that are going to happen in the near term? Uh, what we're seeing a lot of buyers doing is looking at uh, spending levels and, and, and categories uh, and, and how those changed in the last recession, the 2008 Great Recession. And using that as a model for those spending habits and channel categories, um, you know, I think this risk won't necessarily have an impact on all businesses. For instance, um, you know, value-oriented or private label brands uh, in food or quick service restaurants um, in the food service side, you know, performed favorably during the last recession. So those categories, I think, um, are going to have a lower amount of cyclical risk um, and ultimately see more interest among buyers because there's going to be um, you know, less of that risk and an ability to create value and exit in the near term. Uh, what about global scale? Do you think that, you know, the coming recession, those changing consumer habits you just spoke of, and even just fears of a uh, second wave of the coronavirus, do you think it's going to change the way people look at acquiring foreign businesses? Do you think they're going to con uh, try to contract and maintain operations in the U.S.? Or do you think they'll try to get a hybrid model where they have both international and domestic production? Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with geopolitical risk. Um, I think because of what we're seeing as, you know, varying responses to COVID across each country, it's actually created a lot more geopolitical risk now than there had been a year ago. Um, we're also seeing, uh, you know, things like nationalization of certain industries like airline getting put on the table and that, you know, although not as relevant to food space, it just ultimately increases the, the, the country specific risk for, for investments. Um, you know, I think on the opposite end of what you asked, I think there's always been a strong appetite from non-U.S. buyers and acquiring businesses in the U.S. Um, our country is is large and stable. It's relatively business friendly and, you know, has less political and economic risk relative to other countries. So because of this, I actually think there'll be a lot more um, interest among non-U.S. buyers in acquiring U.S. food and beverage businesses going forward. It's just a safer place to put your money. It has been over the past, I don't know, decade or so. Um, if you look at sort of inbound M&A from, from non-U.S. buyers, and I think that's just going to continue. Um, you know, I'm thinking about um, localizing operations in the U.S. I do foresee some supply chains migrating to the U.S. over time. And I think there's already been talk of government incentives to, to, to help with that, just because there still remains a pretty material um, you know, production cost difference between producing certain products in the U.S. and, and producing overseas. Um, I think that will ultimately lead to, you know, increased acquisitions of processors and, and, and distributors um, and quality assurance and, and a lot of the sort of um, supply chain operations that were happening overseas, you know, happening here. 
So in your opinion, what's the better course of action for a company right now? Should they be looking to engage in mergers and acquisitions, or is it smarter to be somewhat conservative in acquiring new businesses? Yeah, I think if you know if you think about M and A broadly from a strategic buyer perspective, it's it's a it's a strategy option, it's a strategy decision, um, and I think one that will probably need to be weighed by buyers in relation to you know how those buyers are, are positioned themselves to you know make it through COVID and make it through the impending recession. Um, you know, for example, during the last recession, we saw um, a real bifurcation of consumers into, you know, one group that was very value focused um, and another group that was less impacted and, and, you know, more focused on sort of ultra premium products and experiences. So, you know, for buyers who were sort of stuck in the middle, um, M&A is a way to um, position themselves to, you know, attract one of those categories. And it's an easier way to do that um, than trying to migrate there organically, which has around, um, you know, execution challenges, could potentially post threats for business. So, you know, I think for a business that is not well positioned um, to meet those changes, M&A is a definitely sort of wheelhouse in terms of strategy to help them do that. Um, you know, I do think ultimately, um, buyers should be opportunistic in thinking about um, companies and acquisitions as long as they have ready access to capital. Um, you know, imagine if, if you're an operating company and your largest competitor can be acquired. It's 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 a rare opportunity that I think should at least be considered, regardless of you know some of the some of the macro or term and, and, and conditions that are going on. So in the current day, what's your outlook for mergers and acquisitions one year from now? I know you said that we're looking at a recession between two to three years in length. So what does it look like one year from now and maybe even stretch that out to five years and 10 years down the line? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question, but I think, you know, what I would what I would sort of refer back to is what occurred during the, the last recession um, and, and just looking at M&A activity and, and how that was impacted and rebounded. So um, you know, the research that I've, I've done, deal volume for U.S. food, beverage, and nutrition declined by somewhere like, uh, around 7% in 2008, down to about 240 deals. And then, you know, declined by another 23% at sort of trough of the recession um, in 2009, down to about 183 deals. But after 2009, there was a, a steep rebound in M&A activity. Um, it increased by 37% to 250 deals while was sort of a high watermark and higher than you know, volume in 2008. So, you know, because of that, I think there will be a pretty, you know, strong rebound in M&A activity in 2021, at least in the, the packaged food uh, and beverage space, because there's sort of a, um, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, sort of, you know, food and beverage is, is at least from a private equity perspective, it is a safer place to, to play. So, you know, there will be a real strong focus among financial buyers. And then even strategics, I think, if you look at some other sectors of food, like food service or grocery, I think those those sectors are going to struggle in terms of m and volume. You know, there will be consolidation opportunities in those businesses, um, but um, I think there'll be fewer private equity funds that are looking to buy, um, you know, food service and grocery. What about a little bit further into the future, say 10 years? I mean, if you look, you know, further out, I think M and A, like I mentioned, is a crucial part of strategy, and I think it'll it'll remain so. So, you know, I think um, uh, there will be there will continue to be M and A activity over over the long term. The past few years, we've seen transaction multiples rise to the higher end of the range. 
Uh, but with the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic impact associated with it, where do you see transaction multiples going? And what does that mean for the overall M&A market? It's tough to give a real sort of um, real-time perspective on valuations just because there haven't been enough M&A transactions done you know, during the pandemic to, to give you that real-time data. But I would sort of look at the, the public markets as a way to gauge real-time valuation changes. Um, you know, from what, from what I've seen, most U.S. public food and beverage companies are trading anywhere from 75 to 95% of 52-week highs. Um, so that's helped keep multiples on the higher end of their historical peaks. So, you know, I think that would ultimately indicate that there hasn't been a material downward impact to valuations just yet. I do think that for strong businesses with high value to strategics, that could be sold um, in the near term. You know, I think there will actually be minimal change to pre-COVID, you know, transaction multiple highs for those businesses. Um, there's still a lot of capital available for strategic buyers. And I think actually there's a uniquely window here where there will be a um, scarcity premium that could be applied to businesses that are in the market this year. You know, if you think about it, if you're um, an attractive business and can get the full attention among many strategic and financial buyers, it's, it's more likely that there will be a competitive process and that could lead to a premium valuation. So, you know, I think that dynamic as well will bode well for multiples, at least for packaged food and beverage companies, you know, in the near term. I do think though that, you know, in the overall M&A market, one factor that uh, that will impact valuations uh, more so outside of food and beverage is the availability leverage. Um, you know, typically private equity funds raise debt capital and use that debt capital to, to, to fund purchase prices. So, you know, going back to my comment about uh, thawing the freeze, I think they're still pretty frozen. But I think, you know, for food and beverage companies, which historically have had less sort of risk and are perceived as a less risky category for lenders, um, you know, they're there will be deals that can get done. There will be lenders that support buyouts for those businesses. But from what I'm hearing, they're somewhere in the range of, you know, one to three times EBITDA lower in terms of the amount of debt capital that they'll make available. And ultimately, that's going to lead to a dynamic where private equity funds are going to have a, a funding gap, or, you know, value purchase price that, that they're willing to pay. Um, and I think they'll do they'll they'll sort of bridge that gap in a few ways. Um, you know, for better businesses, they'll bridge that gap through just investing more equity. Um, it's it's a tougher ask because it ultimately means that they need to have a much better return on the back end to justify investing. We're also, I think, beginning to see already and, and saw a lot in the last recession is structuring. Um, so that can be somewhere uh, in the form of a seller note where sellers postpone collection of a portion of their purchase price, you know, in exchange for some interest or amortization, um, or in an earnout where a certain portion of the purchase price is, is contingent on the performance of the business post-transaction, um, and using that structuring to sort of, you know, bridge whatever valuation expectations there are for buyers, but, um, but you know, can't really be met by uh, or, or sellers, but can't really be met by buyers. So even before the pandemic, we've seen some traditional food businesses forced into bankruptcy. Uh, Dean Foods is an example that comes to mind. Do you expect more food and beverage space companies will be forced into this option because of the pandemic? Will it be more prominent in specific subcategories? Uh, for example, quick service versus full service restaurants. Yeah, I, I absolutely think there will be more filings. Um, and, and you know, I think one, one thing to think about when you monitor bankruptcy activity is that, you know, an in-court bankruptcy filing um, is, is often a 
last resort to restructurings, there are usually some initial restructuring conversations that happen between debtors and lenders and, and other other creditors. Usually, if those parties cannot come to an agreement, they then file bankruptcy. So, you know, even though we haven't seen as many bankruptcy announcements, um, I would guess that there are hundreds of discussions going on uh, regarding restructuring. You know, but you mentioned eFoods, for example. You know, that was a troubled business for many years. Uh, consumers have been shifting away from consuming food and milk for several years, you know, Dean in response and needed to raise capital to fund debt paydowns and they sold off businesses. They spun off Lightwave, they sold other parts of their businesses. So, you know, that was already struggling, um, you know, before COVID. I think for the uh, restaurant bankruptcies that we've seen, again, those were businesses which often, uh, more often than not, were struggling before this this downturn. So think of, um, you know, full service dining, think of, um, you know, buffet restaurant concepts, those were already out of favor and challenged because of operational issues uh, or foot traffic um, or other issues with their concepts um, that, that I think ultimately led to the filings. Um, but, you know, we will see more activity. Um, you know, I think it's going to be uh, primarily around the food service space. Um, so not just restaurants, but food service distributors. And there are also a lot of food processors that are, um, you know, heavily concentrated into, into the food service space. Um, you know, within restaurants, I think uh, I mentioned full service. I think that's going to be uh, challenged because consumers, at least initially, have remained hesitant to return to dining in restaurants in mass. Um, and I think, you know, because of uh, unfortunate job losses that we've seen, um, any restaurants that are charging a higher check um, are going to be, you know, hurt uh, because there just isn't enough capital available for, for those types of dining occasions. Um, you know, the other factor for restaurants regarding bankruptcies is their locations. Um, a lot of concepts with concentrations in in malls, in airports, in college campuses, or other areas that have seen a steep drop in traffic um, will also be more challenged and uh, and I think ultimately to bankruptcies. Um, you know, some form, some portion of those bankruptcies will, will result in sales. Um, uh, selling a business is not always the sort of uh, best solution or best value preservation solution um, for a bankruptcy. So it's sort of it happens sometimes, um, and ultimately that will sort of lead to distress purchasing opportunities. Um, I don't see there being as many of those distress purchasing opportunities in the restaurant space, frankly, because there aren't enough strategic buyers right now that have uh, that are doing okay and 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 have you know capital for acquisitions. They all have cash flow challenges. I mean, if Cheesecake Factory and Starbucks don't have avail- available you know capital to pay their own rents, they're probably not going to have available capital to make acquisitions. Um, so I think because of that, a lot of the uh, purchases in the near term of restaurant businesses are going to be uh, either by lenders who credit bid and just take ownership of the businesses um, or by you know what we would call special situation type funds who are looking for um, uh, high value opportunities um, uh, where they can buy low, bring in some proven operators, you know, enhance performance and turn these around and sell them. Um, there are a lot of those funds, a lot of that capital available. They've been pretty quiet for the past, you know, 
five or six years, but uh, they are they're beginning to um, to get busy. Uh, we've seen a strong trend in mergers and acquisitions, at least here at the Food Institute. While we track, it's seeing that these companies are buying upstarts in next two kind of categories, and by that I would mean uh, Dean Foods buying an oat milk producer, for example. So, do you think this is a trend that's going to continue, or do you expect that some of these traditional food brands might even engage in a merger to try to preserve their market and their uh, you know their brands at that point? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, we've seen that 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 type of strategic acquisition activity as well. Sort of where large companies are are uh, are having to acquire in order to enter adjacent or emerging categories. Um, you know, some of these acquisitions have been more of a stretch and further away from their core competency. You know, for example, Hershey's acquisition of Crave, and we've sort of seen how that's gone. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, what you call upstarts. Um, you know, were in categories that have become crowded um, or, you know, had not really had all that differentiated brands or product categories to begin with. Um, and because of that, the buyers of those assets haven't been able to um, create as much value as they intended um, and are beginning to consider unwinding them. And again, I'll mention Crave selling, uh, Crave selling back to their founder from Hershey. Um, so I think because of that dynamic, We'll probably see fewer of those acquisitions occurring in the coming years, um, unless buyers have a really strong conviction that there are long-term drivers that are that are you know going to drive those upstart categories. Um, I think there will be uh, less patience in general across strategic and financial buyers for brands and startups that require a meaningful amount of consumer marketing investment to drive, you know, brand recognition and trial. Um, that was a pretty common business model um, over the past few years. And, um, you know, it's not a concern among, you know, early stage investors. But I think that strategics, you know, if they have an option of where to allocate their marketing dollars, would rather put them towards uh, promotions and stores to drive velocity. That was really successful in the last recession. I think they'd rather spend their marketing dollars that way than spend it on, um, you know, creating uh, awareness around these upstart brands and driving trial. And, and it's just not a, a high, as a high enough sort of ROI for, for that type of spend. Um, you, know, you mentioned consolidation. I think consolidation um, would be more common as a way to create cost savings opportunities more so than add, add, you know, add new channels. Um, we were beginning to see that a lot in the restaurant space before COVID. Um, there were a lot of mid-sized concepts that would buy other concepts and realize synergy. Uh, we saw that with Kava buying Zoe's Kitchen um, or with Lemonade and Modern Market merging. Um, I think that'll be sort of uh, a bigger issue when you think about the fact that in restaurants, a lot of the top line has decreased because, um, you know, those those fixed costs sort of remain. So um, I think cost savings will be a, a bigger driver. What kind of advice would you give a food or beverage maker or actually anybody in the food and beverage space regarding acquisitions and mergers in the current climate? What personal advice would you want to give to them? So on the sell side, I mentioned, you know, the scarcity premium. I think that's a real dynamic worth considering as business owners think about when to go to market. Um, you know, being one of the few companies in the market this summer, you know, should result in a lot of interest and, and, and you know, potentially high valuations. Um, you know, also on the, uh, another consideration for sellers is, um, you know, I think spending more time around uh, how to build and position your growth story will be really important. Um, 
consumers are going to change how they're spending money on food and beverage. And that definitely will need to be considered for sellers because buyers are going to, you know, diligence forecast from that perspective. Um, advice for buyers, I would say, you know, I think that um, a lot of buyers are going to be looking at businesses that had seen some change in financial performance because of COVID. Um, for packaged food companies, a lot of times that's going to mean uh, higher sales, higher EBITDA, higher cash flow. Um, and as a buyer, do you really want to pay off of you know what might be inflated margins? Um, I think buyers are going to have to dig deeper, look at sort of velocity um, during stock up periods uh, in, in this current period and going forward and thinking about what really is normalized performance um, and, you know, really being as um, as disciplined as possible um, and applying valuation to that normalized uh, financial performance versus something that might be inflated because of some, uh, you know, outside de- uh uh, developments that were going on. Um, you know, in addition, buyers, I think it's going to be really important to uh, make sure they line up capital as early as possible. Um, you know, I, I would encourage buyers to begin speaking with lenders early on in the acquisition process, earlier than usual. Um, there are a lot, a lot of lenders out there who like the credits they're in and are wanting to extend more debt to fund add-ons, but I think they're going to take more time with their due diligence than they have in the past. Um, so I'd encourage them to, you know, begin a line of financing a lot earlier on than, than they may have in the past. That's a lot of food for thought, Farzad. I want to thank you. I think that about wraps it up for this week on the Food Institute podcast. Farzad, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Duff and Phelps? Sure. Yeah. So uh, you can go to www.duffandphelps.com. Um, that'll get you to a page that uh, that goes over all the services that we provide. We've also uh, put out some interesting thought leadership pieces in food, food M&A. Uh, we just put one out in food retail. So um, leadership uh, section of our website will be a great place to, um, to, to monitor. We'll definitely share the relevant links uh, in the description of this episode. We'll make sure that our listeners can take a look at those different items you just mentioned. So once again, I'd just like to thank Farzad for his time today. Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in the description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank <music> you.